Hello and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for March, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I am the news editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. In this episode of the podcast, we will be discussing the 2016 budget unveiled by George Osborne earlier this month and what this means for markets. The latest budget saw the Chancellor announce a reduction in the growth forecast for the UK, plans to lower the deficit by 2019-2020, as well as unveiling a new lifetime ISA for savers under the age of 40 from April 2017. Joining me in the studio to discuss the economic implications and the current backdrop is Neil Williams, Group Chief Economist at Hermes Investment Management. Thank you for joining me, Neil. You're welcome. Now, the growth forecast for the UK was cut in the budget. How serious is this cut in terms of the strength of the global economy? Um, what does it say about the UK currently? And um, what are the key sort of risks that the UK economy is facing now? Yes, well, the, the Chancellor in the budget cut his growth uh, numbers um, down to about 2% for mm-hmm. the next uh, couple of years, which I guess are part of the sort of cocktail of risks that he keeps telling us about and his budget giveaways for the next year uh, are one way of perhaps trying to water down those, mm-hmm. that, that, that cocktail. But just to put that 2% growth number for the UK into perspective, um, the UK is still within sort of GDP fast lane. If we look at mm-hmm. uh, how the big economies have clawed themselves out of the hole since the crisis, uh, the UK is about 7% up in real terms. Uh, admittedly, the US mm-hmm. is a bit better at 10%. But by comparison, the Eurozone and Japan are barely back to, to, to square one. Uh, so the, the UK um, should, um, even after the budget, continue at a, at a decent clip uh, relative to the advanced economies. But you mentioned uh, the risks, Anna. There are two main risks now. The first one, uh, evidently, is the external picture. Um, and uh, the, the UK is, is really a quite a small open economy. Uh, we account for only about 2.5% of world GDP, mm. uh, but uh, about 4% of world exports. Uh, so it's inevitable that we're going to feel a chill from the cold wheels, winds elsewhere. And the second uh, risk, I guess, is domestic, uh, with that uh, magic word Brexit again, mm, which is going to uh, be with us for the next few uh, few months at, at least. Um, and and we, need, we still need to see how that's going to play out. The impact of that, if it is a vote uh, to leave, uh, could uh, kick uh, the OBR's budget forecast into the long grass, because after all, if it occurs... Uh, they're going to have to push that growth number down mm. further, expect less tax revenue, uh, and uh, and also perhaps push down or, or expect the possibility of uh, of higher uh, guilt yield assumptions mm. and interest rate yeah. assumptions. So the the, the budget uh, forecast we had for March uh, assumes there is no Brexit. That could change greatly if that does occur. So um, so obviously Brexit is, is sort of the key issue on, on investors' minds at the moment as well. How do you think this affects the economic stability of the UK um, within the global economy as well? Well, for, for the time being, it's a sort of known unknown for UK assets, yeah. to, to borrow a phrase. Um, and my, my sort of working assumption is that it can yet still be avoided. Uh, I, I'm hoping that logic uh, still prevails in mm. that um, in macroeconomic terms, we wouldn't want to distance ourselves from our major trading partner uh, maybe forego the foreign direct investment. The UK has been a magnet for FDI uh, over the last few years. And also politically, uh, the US quite likes us being part of the uh, uh, of the EU, but not part of, of the euro. And also added to that, there may be the inertia factor, the fact uh, it's the devil we know. 
Um, I can just about remember um, the back in, in the 70s when we had a referendum whether or not to stay in the mm. then EEC uh, after two years. And what swayed it then, uh, a two-thirds, one-third vote, uh, was really the fact we were already there uh, and we didn't want to have a leap into the dark. So those two factors together may uh, steer the vote. But what, what happens if it does occur? Yeah. Uh, well, then it seems to me that, uh, of course, the UK economy can survive, but it's going to be a long, drawn-out can of worms. The only real precedent we had was, was Greenland uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, when they had a referendum in '82, but they couldn't leave until '85. It took three years of negotiation. Uh, and I would argue the UK, slightly bigger than Greenland, <laughs> 43 years into the European project. Uh, if we do go for a Brexit, then it's going to take uh, a number of years to sort that out. And the second thing is, what sort of Brexit could it be? A hard version where we completely disattach ourselves from uh, the EU or a softer version where we become an associate member, a bit like Switzerland mm. uh, or, or Norway. Um, and the impact therefore on, on assets in the UK really could be quite interesting. The hit to the pound maybe we're already seeing. Yeah. The impact on equities perhaps is straightforward, but the impact on gilts is not so straightforward. And I think there would be two effects. The first one in the short term, uh, is that uh, actually gilts might like the fact, if there were a Brexit, that uh, we are potentially facing an even slower growth rate than the Chancellor mm. set out. But once the dust settles, who's going to buy the gilts? A third of our gilts are held internationally uh, by investors who will care about the pound and will care about uh, foreign foreign ratings. So I think uh, going forward, the dif difficulty for the Bank of England then uh, might be that they may have to dust off and bring back quantitative easing, QE. Wow. Quite a, quite a big change to the current policy. So another thing the Chancellor talked about in the budget was um, his planned return to a budget surplus in 2019-2020. So do you think this target is achievable then? Well, it's certainly achievable, but it's going to come at a cost if he wants to stick to it. Um, with, if you like, the, the referendum breathing down his neck, he was never going to completely uh, lower his fiscal mm. guard in, in March's budget uh, with the rating agencies watching. But what he's done... Uh, is elect to, if you like, leave his tent peg in the ground for 2019-2020, mm. that, that, that hallowed surplus. Uh, but in the meantime, the slippage fiscally that he's now talking about means that the sort of glide path down to that surplus in the next few years uh, is going to be even steeper. Um, so what, what it means is either, as we get closer, uh, he, um, uh, he hopes that uh, the world delivers him the low interest rates uh, the, the low guilt yield assumptions and the low inflation that he's assuming, that's behind the OBR forecast, to get there. Or secondly, if he doesn't get that, he is going to have to stand ready maybe to raise taxes or reduce government borrowing into the next general election, mm. maybe 2020, which seems unlikely. So the tent peg is still in place. Uh, I'm sure he'll be hoping uh, that the referendum in June goes his way. You mentioned the ratings agencies. Do you think there is a danger to or, or a, sort of a risk to the UK's rating? In, in the event of a Brexit, I suppose? Well, yes, I do, because if, if, the, if, the, if I'm right in thinking that uh, should it occur, Brexit ends up being a, a can of worms, yeah. then it has all sorts of implications that flow out. So, for example, uh, would it mean that Scotland uh, would call for a second referendum mm. uh, and other parts of the UK, uh, maybe even my own home country, Wales? Um, in which case, if we were then to be negotiating our way back into some sort of Switzerland-type associate membership, it may not even be the whole of the UK that's negotiating. It may just be most of England. Yeah. Um, in which case, the rating agencies looking at a situation where that's happening, where GDP is falling at a stroke, uh, and also uh, where maybe the fiscal picture is getting a little bit worse, uh, I'm in no doubt the rating agencies probably would react. 
And going back to what you said about central bank policy earlier as well, um, what are sort of the, the main risks for central bank policy then at the moment? I mean, are we likely to still see rate rises in the current environment? Or, you know, if if we do go for more QE, how is that going to affect the economy? And is there even a possibility of negative rates? And how will we cope with that? Well, if, if, if I'm right that this glide path into the surplus from, from the Chancellor is going to be steeper than we first thought, then, then get going closer to the election, we've probably got a few tough years yet to, yeah. yet to come. We're not out of the woods yet, as the Chancellor has, has, uh, has, has warned us. And I guess what it means is that if, uh, if, if fiscal policy is still relatively tight, then it's an added reason for monetary policy to remain fairly loose. Mm. And as things currently stand, we know the Bank of England has this single uh, inflation mandate. It tries to get uh, inflation close uh, to 2% um, as it can over the medium term. I can't currently, under current conditions, get uh, the CPI back up to 2% mm. any time before 2018. Mm. But, yeah. and it's a big but, if something like Brexit or some other shock were to occur and the pound were to fall really quite hard, uh, there is a great chance that uh, we may be approaching uh, even parity against the US dollar. Now, I, I remember that in the mid-80s when we were approaching, I think it was about 105 against the mm. dollar. If I put that back into my own projections, I get CPI then getting to 2% a lot sooner, uh, around Christmas this year. And that's going to cause a big dilemma for the Bank of England. Mm. They can't cut interest rates or even take them to negative if the pound's falling. Are they prepared to raise interest rates uh, in the case of a Brexit if we are inching our way towards a recession? I think that's unlikely. Uh, and it does mean that perhaps they're going to have to think of some other uh, non-conventional measures. And I wonder, reading between the lines, whether that's one reason why the Bank of England Governor Carney has recently talked about the fact that he's not prepared to reduce the balance sheet of the Bank of England through uh, quantitative tightening, or QT. Yeah. We all need another acronym, so let's, have, let's call it QT. <laughs> um, before bank rate gets to 2%, where years from that, I think he's keeping his options open. Well, quite a difficult situation we find ourselves in, I suppose. Thank you very much for um, coming in, Neil. Now it's time for our news segment, where we discuss some of the stories which have been making headlines lately, and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's Deputy News Editor, Laura Jew. One of the biggest stories to catch our readers' attention this month was a report by Fundscape and GBI2 on industry gatekeepers. This report looked into fund ratings agencies and their unwillingness to rate funds from smaller asset management firms. So, Laura, what were the highlights of this report? The report controversially stated the best buy lists could be misleading as they do not always include vehicles based on quality and longevity of returns. This means that some clients may be putting funds that perform well in the short term but lack the fundamental strengths to perform over the long term. Graham Bentley, founder of consultancy GBI2, said he was surprised by the number of funds which looked like strong candidates but were being overlooked by independent researchers. Mm. On the other hand, some of the ones which were included had poorer performance, but more reputation and sales momentum behind them. Which funds did they find particularly popular then? The top five funds featured were the Stewart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders, BlackRock Gold in general, Artemis Income, AXA Framlington UK Select Opportunities and M&G Optimal mm. Income. All of these are run by well-known managers in the shape of Angus Tullock, Evie Hambro, Ed Leggett, Nigel Thomas and Richard Rulno respectively and all of them are over £1 billion in size. 
The top five most featured firms were Schroeder's, Fidelity, Invesco Perpetual, M&G and Jupiter. Yeah, so not surprising, I suppose. So what was the reaction from management groups? Uh, Industry figures were quite cautious Mm. over commenting, over fears that they would aggregate some of the gatekeepers, who are estimated to control 50% to 70% of the fund flows in the UK. But they admitted it was a known issue in the industry and that they themselves had had funds rejected by ratings agencies for a variety of reasons. These included small fund size, unclear mandate and short-term performance. As a result, boutique firms said they felt pushed aside by agencies who were rejecting them in favour of larger players. Mm. They highlighted that a lack of ratings effectively cut them off from a large part of the advisory market who use a rating from a big agency such as Morningstar as a field site in their fund selection criteria. They also criticised the emphasis on due diligence by the regulator for forcing advisors to select funds off a buy list rather than researching them individually. There is also the issue of costs. While firms don't charge anything for looking at a fund, once it is rated, it costs between £5,000 to £10,000 a year per fund if they choose to use the rating on their marketing material. And that's a large outlay for a small or boutique asset management firm. For a larger firm, this can rise to as high as £40,000. As a result, there is a perception that agencies will be reluctant to explore smaller funds if the firm is going to struggle to pay the fees. Conversely, those larger firms will have bigger budgets, which mean they'll be able to afford to have multiple funds rated. They described the situation as a catch-22, as they couldn't get a rating until a fund was a certain size, yet they couldn't get those assets until they had a rating. A bit of a problem, really. So, so how did the ratings agencies react to the criticism? Uh, unsurprisingly, the ratings agencies denied yeah. that this was the case and that the size of the fund or the firm was irrelevant to their decision. A spokesperson for Morningstar said its research covered those funds which were most relevant to investors and that there was no minimum size. Clive Hale, who's a director at Fund Calibre, said around 50% of the funds rated by the company had less than £5 billion in retail assets and 20% had less than £3 billion. However, he did say that a strong infrastructure, team and IT system to help firms run the fund successfully was considered, and this is more likely to be achieved by a large team. Moving on from this story, what other big stories have been hitting the headlines lately? Another topic of interest this month was a report from Moody's entitled Asset Managers Lockout Key Person Risk. This looks at the steps that firms were taking to mitigate the exit of star managers. The US report found firms are implementing measures such as appointing more co-managers and emphasising a team-based approach to avoid the spotlight falling on one particular manager. This follows the departure of managers such as Bill Gross at PIMCO and Jason Pidcock moving Mm. from Newton. The report also examined the implementation of good-bad lever provisions. This is a way of offering incentives for managers to stay at a firm, such as offering them equity ownership, while simultaneously imposing tighter contracts and penalties if they choose to leave. However, wealth managers felt the issues of star managers were still prevalent in the industry and that the risk of a manager departing was a key consideration during their due diligence. Thank you for that overview, Laura. That's all we have time for today. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you would like us to cover. You can contact me via email at anna.fedorova, that's F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.